Okay, we've been working through the gospel of Luke. The head, heart, hands of Jesus. I just don't think we can do better than reading the gospel and sharing in that all of Luke's insights into the master's life and walking with him. This morning, we want to look at this idea. Go ahead and put up the next, uh, who am I? You see this question of identity, and we're going to read about it here in the text, and it was there in the temptations, and it is a buzzword, isn't it, that is everywhere. It is, it's almost impossible to avoid discussions about gender identity or political identities, some type racial identity, sexual identity, identity politics seem to dominate Washington and social media. And so from casual conversations to academic discussions, everything seems to be about identity and identity this, identity that. No wonder that just a few years ago, the word identity was named the word of the year. And it's funny because it's a topic that while so popular, it's not new. When we ask, what does the Bible have to say about identity, I think you would be blown away if you begin, began to frame and look at Scripture through that lens and that question of identity. Because all over Scripture, we see it speaking of God's identity and human identity over and over again from the beginning of the book to the end. Now, last week, as we looked at Jesus' baptism. And as I described, it was an affirmation of what? His identity. And there may be more going on there, maybe a better word, and the word I used last week, his identity and his mission. But it begins with this humble submission to John the baptizer, and so he's baptized there in the Jordan River, and this, the, you, you utter humanity of all of that for for this one to leave heaven and to be immersed in that muddy Jordan is profound in and of itself. But when you think about the meaning in terms of identity, here's the words of the Father. You are my son. That's about identity. Whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. So Jesus' adult life is set in motion with God announcing His identity and His mission. And the heavens open, the text says, and the Holy Spirit is given, and His baptism could not be more significant. And so we spoke about that last week, inviting us into that journey because our baptism likewise is one of both identity and mission. Now, I made a discovery this week as I was progressing through the text, and you can see we're really moving along here. We're all the way to Luke 4 and the temptations. And not only that, we're going to go back because when Christmas time comes, I want to go back to the birth story, and we want us to see that all fresh again. So it, it, it might take a while to get through Luke, and I hope, I, hope we, I don't, you know, beat it to death, belabor it too much, but I, I think we're finding some, just some major foundational nuggets for our life here. 
And as I progress through Luke from Jesus' baptism in chapter 3 to the temptation in chapter 4, a very different text, I want to suggest to you that the temptations are about identity. Just as at Jesus' baptism, but now coming from a very different source. If John chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3 and Jesus' baptism is about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in His baptism, they're not the only ones interested in Jesus' identity. As it turns to Luke 4, we see the devil, the evil one who as far as I can tell is this powerful being working between Jesus' ears, has one goal, and that is to undermine the identity that Jesus has just embraced. To bring Jesus' identity, which has just been affirmed in His baptism, into question. The temptations of Jesus are attempting to rattle his identity. Or to say it another way, the passage is about attempted identity theft or identity distortion or identity loss. You remember that ferocious language from 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says the devil is like a lion seeking someone to devour. I want to suggest that over this question of identity, there is enormous tension and confrontation of powers. There are two missions that are at war, one initiated by the Trinity, the other by the devil himself, who has an entirely different mission. And to appreciate this battle over this, uh, this, this stage here for this battle, I want us to think about another passage in John chapter 10, verse 10, for just a minute, as we think about the one who tempted Jesus. He's described here as the thief that wants to come in only to steal and to kill and destroy. Rick Renner, who's a Greek scholar, described John 10.10 this way. The thief wants to get into, get his hands into every good thing in your life. In fact, this pickpocket is looking for any opportunity to wiggle his way so deeply into your personal affairs that he can walk off with everything you hold precious and dear. And when he's finished stealing all your goods and possessions, he'll take his plan to rob you blind to the next level. The goal of this thief is to totally waste and devastate your life. And if nothing stops him, he'll leave you insolvent, flat broke, and cleaned out 
in every area of your life. That's John 10.10 in a loose interpretation, okay, or translation. Now, back to our text in Luke chapter 4. How does this text reveal that the devil is about undermining our identity? We see it in verse 3 with a passage like this. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, how could there be a more direct assault on his identity than that question? Tell this stone to become bread. Again, in verse 7, and he said to him, that is the devil said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor and has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to if you worship me. It will all be yours. And so the priorities and the identity of Jesus are called into question. Now verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and here's our language again. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. The Father had just announced that He was the Son from heaven, and the Spirit had descended, and now each of the elements of His identity are being brought into question. I want us to remember, according to James chapter 2, that the devil knows there's a God. He believes, our text says, and shudders. So he also questions, are you who you say you are? Are you who they say you are? I think there's a lot to learn from this text. And there are sins of appetite, and there are sins of approval, and there are sins of ambition. And underneath the appetite, one might say, is the temptation to be controlled by our human bodily desires and reduce ourselves to our animalistic instincts. And then there's the whole idea of approval in this text. And underneath this is the temptation to success and to power and to feel good about ourselves and to have others feel good about us. And then there is the threat of ambition. Underneath is the temptation to be popular and to show off and to use our talents for our own ego. Underneath all of these is, of course, the question of identity. Not unique to Jesus, though. If we back up and think about our Bible, doesn't it go all the way back to the garden and to Genesis chapter 2? An amazing thought that where God says, let us make man or humankind in our image, in our likeness, imago Dea, that is made in His likeness, that we are to be reflections or mirrors of His image. That's who we are. That's our, that's our present identity. And I want us to see this. Jesus Christ, 
This one who was just baptized, this one who has come from God, this one who was starting his ministry is this perfect imago dia. He is the perfect image of God. He is the new Adam. And while the original crossing of the Jordan River and the entering of the promised land turned out to be an utter fail by the children of Israel many, many generations before, this plunging in the water by Jesus and his followers is to give new hope to a new, to this Messiah who is here. So what was affirmed in Jesus' baptism, what was threatened in the wilderness, is this idea of Imago Dia, made in His image. And the devil's threats to Jesus are determined to destroy, to upend, to tarnish, to dismantle, to crush these elements of what it means to be a human being. You see, what was too much to resist in the garden, Adam and Eve couldn't do it, are the same sins that now threaten Jesus and are the very same ones that now threaten us. There is nothing new under the sun. And at this point, we really should take a deep breath and give thanks that Jesus resisted. That He did not succumb to those temptations of ambition and appetite and approval in a way that would have sidetracked God's plan. Betty Vaughn and I got together earlier in the week as we're planning Richard's funeral for Saturday, and I told her a little bit about what I was sharing and this connection that I'd never made before between this baptism of identity in Luke 3 and what's happening in Luke 4 in the temptations as questions where our identity is being undermined. And so Betty, she's a thinker, and she went home, and the next morning I have a text and she said, I woke up early and I thought about a text from Scripture about that passage in Matthew 16, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus announced why he had come and that he had to suffer and he had to die and he had to be raised to life. See, this was his identity and his mission. And Peter took him aside to rebuke him and say, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. 
but merely human concerns. Let's put it this way. What if every temptation in your life is an effort to steal and destroy your true identity as a beloved child of God? And so the devil, prowling like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, is relentless in trying to cause us to sin. That is to disorder or to distort or to forget our identity. That we're mirrors of His image. And His job is to cloud or obscure or shatter our work of imaging our Creator. It seems to me that what He tries to do then is to disorder our identity is to take even something good, maybe our social identity, maybe our sexual identity, maybe our racial identity, maybe our vocational identity, maybe our family identities, and tries to make those ultimate, or at least to distort or destroy what God has intended for those. And there's countless variations of way this is happening all over our culture. And I don't, I'm not suggesting this morning that these many, many identities that we have in our lives are unimportant. I think, in fact, they rise to the surface because people want to be heard. They don't want to be marginalized. And they're so troubled or feel like they're left out that they want to be understood and seen and heard. And they do that in terms of their identity. So they need acknowledgement and affirmation so that they might find their rightful place if they've been left out or forgotten. But I want to tell you, and I hope we know, and I hope we understand, that every one of those identities must be secondary. And that every one of those identities that you might be able to imagine or that you might label yourself, thought of my own old, white, northern, heterosexual, politically independent, nearsighted Christian male. I don't even know where he fits in society anymore, okay. But here's the point, secondary, with the one true identity. the beloved child of God. Now, let me just give you an extended thought to finish my message this morning from Paul Tripp as he uh, just loved the 
way he wrote this and expressed it, and I think it tries to get at very practically what I'm trying to say this morning. He said this way, and so I must look at every human being, no matter what they believe, no matter what they're doing, no matter how much I would otherwise be disgusted, no matter how wrong they are, how malevolent they must be, I must look at them and see the likeness of God Himself. And I must always treat that being with love and honor and with dignity. And that's the heart of justice. And that's the heart of racial equality. And that's the heart of treating women with honor and not as objects. And it's why I don't scream and yell at my children and treat them like little slaves to make my life easier. And it's why I don't treat my neighbor with irritation because he is different from me. And as I read that section, I said, get behind me, Satan! And I ask your prayer for me as I fight my own irritations and prejudices and resentments and determination to sometimes allow those identities to rise to a place that God never intended. Even as a leader of this church, even as a leader or because of, so I say, the people of this church. Tripp goes on to say, because of their identity and ours, it's why government should never be corrupt politicians living for human power. That's why I should treat people with dignity whose culture is marvelously different than mine and whose language is different than mine, and dressed in ways that I find weird and eat things that I would never eat because dignity is stamped on them. Tripp goes on to say, I'm a city boy. I walk the city streets and people say to me, don't you miss the glory of God in creation? And I say, what are you talking about? I see the likeness of God walking toward me in the street. Me walking in Philadelphia is a time of worship for me because I'm seeing God's likeness again and again and again and again. And I remember His existence and I remember to treat all these people with dignity. And I should walk by a homeless person and I should love them and I should have a heart full of sympathy because their dignity is damaged. But it is there. And this doctrine changes the whole ball game of human interaction and all the institutions that deal with human beings because God made the choice that He would place that dignity in His likeness on human beings. And I must always remember that no matter what.
Every temptation in your life is an effort to steal and destroy your true identity. Imago Dio, as a beloved child of God. Every one of us has a has tarnished our image before a holy God. And we need to be made new. And those who have come to Christ and have been baptized into Christ, our Bible says through the Apostle Paul, the old is gone, the new has come. We are covered in identity, the identity Christ. And I hope this morning that you'll see the connection between your baptism and your day-to-day life. How are you handling the constant assaults to your identity? What could happen if you allowed God's primary identity to have the primary place. Let's stand, have the praise team come up, and we'll pray together. Lord God, my prayer this day, with a hundred, if not a thousand ways to apply this text, you know of our appetites and our ambitions and our approval-seeking and all the ways we have distorted and continually distort the identity that you have for us, we first of all thank you for Jesus because he refused to succumb to the temptation. And then we pray that that identity that we find in Christ, in our baptism, We can claim it and own it above all others and reflect it, the imago dia, to every person that we meet. In Jesus' holy name.